Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Survival Podcast, a show that helps you rewire your brain to survive and thrive. Join your host, Ozzy Martinez Jr., a Marine, a combat disabled vet, husband, and father, as he shares his firsthand knowledge and experience of hitting rock bottom, almost ending it all, and then turning it around. Dive into the rewired minds of thriving survivors. This show is an in-depth look at post-traumatic survival. And now, Ozzy. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Hope everybody's having a great week, a great day. Uh, like my friend, uh, brother Jason Redmond says, if you woke up today and you were breathing, it's a great day. There's a lot of individuals that uh, aren't doing that. As a matter of fact, I just uh, woke up this morning and saw the news and uh, there's two Marines that were killed in action in, uh, in Iraq and uh, some operations, some special operation Marines were killed in Iraq. So um, not a great day for them and their family. But if you are up, you're listening to this podcast, then you're on the right path because that means you're trying to get yourself out of the funk. Um, you might be struggling in life and, uh, that's why I created this podcast. It's for you. So I'm still nervous. Uh, I've had, I've already interviewed Jason Redman. I've already interviewed, um, a bunch of my friends. I've already interviewed, uh, some police officers. And now I got an individual that I finally first met right now in person. We've been introduced multiple times on social media and, uh, his name is Tim. We're going to call him Timmy for, for the purpose of the episode, we're not going to go ahead and disclose what department he works for or anything, anything in that matter that could really identify him. So, you know, there's a lot of repercussion and stigma still on PTSD that finally is being broken, especially here in Florida. But it's still an issue in some departments and it's still an issue for some individuals um, that have it to talk about it in their department without uh, without backlash or anything. So, um, I'm going to tell you what I know so far about Tim. Tim has been in the service for about 28 years. So, I mean, we're talking about a seasoned, seasoned veteran here in the fire department. And I believe he's also done urban search and rescue. Um, we're not going to go too much in detail on that. Um, I do know that we can talk about that. He's been part of urban search and rescue after the Katrina aftermath and then as well in Haiti. So, uh, without further ado, uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oz. All right. Um, Perfect. So, uh, Tim, tell me a little bit about yourself, man. Um, tell me what you do want to share so far at the beginning. Okay. Um, and then uh, let's just go from there. Let's let's uh, let's dive into why you're here. So, but let's let's go ahead and start off with who is Tim. Okay. So, uh, as you said, I have 28 years in the fire service. 20 of them with the current department that I'm with now. I'm heavily involved in technical rescue and the urban search and rescue program. I've been a part of the urban search and rescue program since right after 9-11. I've responded to basically every catastrophe, man-made or, or weatherborne catastrophe since after 9-11. So I've done a pretty good amount of traveling around the country. And around the to world. Haiti. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Tim, you actually reached out to me and uh, said you were interested. I mean, I had kind of like dropped the bait that I, I wanted you on the show and stuff like that. But then you did reach out to me and uh, you reached out about, um, I mean, you just said a specific word committing. 
Yes. So, um, I didn't know if you meant it like I want to speak about committing or I'm committing to speak, but I know that there's a lot of um, darkness in the life that that you've had as well as the life I've had. I mean, we were talking off off uh, record here. We were before we started recording, and you know, we spoke about uh, constantly getting a phone call or a text or the the, the hearing of a so and so just just died and stuff like that. So it's you, I don't know it, you yourself. Then how I said in my first episode, you start questioning, how does it come to you? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's crazy. And, uh, there's mornings where I wake up and I cringe before I look at social media because I wonder who I'm going to see on there. That's, that's, take, you know, expired their life or taken their life. I yeah. have a lot of friends over the last, probably seven or eight years that, that have lost to suicide because of PTSD-related issues. And it's rough. And uh, I never thought at all, I never in my life would have figured that I would have been a, a person who was contemplating it. But uh, I went as far as I had it completely planned. I had how, why, where, everything. I did research on, on the whole thing, and I had my drop-dead date, so to speak. And, uh, I was fortunate in that, uh, my crew at the time, uh, knew my captain kind of figured out something was going on and, uh, he put the station out of service and showed up at my house with a couple of the firefighters that I'm very close with at the station and rang the doorbell. And when I answered the door, my initial response was to be aggressive, you know, and really want to start arguing. And, uh, he looked at me and he started crying and he said, I know what you're planning and, and we're here to get you some help. And I took it and I'm here. Let me tell you, that's, that's amazing to hear. Um, and that's what, that's what it's hard to find. Um, uh, it's hard to, I don't, I, I can't speak as much as for you guys that have, are still in the service or still working, whether you're uh, law enforcement, first responder or, active duty military you're still in so it's almost you have to stay closeted for some of these things um but i know that it's hard for you to speak it just as men about it so uh, you start feeling alone and it's i don't know like you said you answered the door you wanted to be aggressive and i i don't know i wasn't there but i could just imagine me like that and maybe seeing his face i don't if they took the time to come to the door, they probably were emotional as well themselves. And once somebody said to you, Hey man, I know what you're feeling. That might've just changed everything. Cause you no longer feel alone. Right. Um, and that's what I tell people that is literally what did it for me. I was at a reunion. I too already had had my plans. Um, my plans weren't, I'm not going to say, um, I guess physical suicide. It was more like, uh, person suicide. Uh, I was, I was, I literally had believed brother, that. I'm looking at your face and you're killing me. Man. No, brother, listen. <laughs> you know why? Because we're looking at mirrors. We're looking in mirrors, and that's it. That's that's the one thing is that I think that 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 is what makes me feel great again. It, honestly, is that I can now look at guys, and we can honestly say, "Holy shit." <laughs> I know exactly what you're feeling right now, you know, um, and it's perfectly fine. The thing is that 
that's what I want people to, if you're listening to this, to this podcast, the, the reason I started this is for people like, for instance, right now, I'll be honest, you look like you're struggling with your emotions, you know, yeah, I am. Um, but I'm not your department, bro. So don't struggle here at my house. I'll bring you a fucking box of Kleenex. I think there's one up there. Um, cry here, bro, because it's normal. All right. Um, it, it, it's that compressed shit that I'm talking about that you really have nobody to really talk to it about because you said it. I'm looking at your face right now. You didn't finish it, but I know what it is. It's like um, you were hurting because you know how much it hurts. I know you're hurt. For me to Absolutely. talk about what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, what I tried doing was committing, like I said, personal suicide. I, I figured that my family was so angry at me. My wife and me had just split up. She was so angry. Everything, everybody was so angry that if I took off and left, that's it. Yeah. You know? Um, it, I was dead to them is yeah. what it was going to be. Um, I really believed that I would be able to go to Belize or something and start a new life. Um, people would think I'm rich or something because I'm still getting my VA paycheck. Um, I thought I'd only had to come back every three months, go to the VA appointments, and that's <laughs> it. So I literally had this all planned out. Um, I went to this, got a phone call, go to this reunion, and that, that moment that me and you just had right here is what happened to me at that reunion. Um, I asked, you know, I, I asked, does anybody ever want to die or just, you know, commit suicide? Because we had just had so many other rumors of other guys in our, not in our company, but in our battalion that had committed suicide. And it, it just, it was, uh, it was a question I had because I was, you know, lingering with it at the time. And, you know, to, to hear you talk about that, that you had your, I mean, you even gave it a name. Uh, what, what is it called? Your drop date or? My drop dead date. Your drop dead date. And it, I want you people to understand that this is normal. If you're listening to this, you're, like I said, on the first step, because maybe you were curious because you think you might have PTSD or something like that. And you don't want to label yourself because you know, there's repercussions either at work or you think PTSD means crazy. And, you know, we're, we're here to break the stigma. We're here to under make individuals understand that, you know, like I've interviewed cops, you can still have PTSD. You can still put on your duty belt with your firearm on the side, still walk somewhere and not want to kill and shoot people. No. Um, do people with PTSD kill and shoot people? Yeah. But if we're going to do statistics, I'm sure there's a lot more people without PTSD that right. kill and shoot people. I mean, the reality is I'm sure the people with PTSD, they're killing themselves. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny you say, uh, um, I've heard, I've listened to all your podcasts since your very first day. And Ooh, all two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes, you know, that phrase, what you just said comes up a lot where, oh, you have PTSD or you've been diagnosed with PTSD and, and you think you're crazy. I got news for you, man. And I'm sure you know this. Crazy would be a walk in the park. If PTSD gave you nothing but crazy, that would be a walk in the park. You know? That's what, you see, that's you know, what I tell people. There's so P many other side effects and so yes. many other little quirks that you get and pick up and you you don't even see it, hear that, that that's the stutter. I, I do that yeah, when I are, get nervous. When oh, I get nervous too. and now when I get anxiety. Me too. And I've, I've never been like that. I, I'm, Listen, I've been people instructor. are like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, crazy. I'm like, I wish that's all it was because, I mean, the real main ones are intrusive memories, yeah. avoidance, negative changes in thinking and mood, physical 
and emotional reactional changes. So that's what you're talking about right now. Yeah. Hyper arousal. You know, um, that would be when we're talking about a scene or something like that, and you kind of just get excited about it. And I'm not I'm talking about sexually excited. You just get excited to the point where you're ready to pump to go to work right now. Absolutely. That's, that's an arousal. It's an excitement. It's people, this is normal. And if you're listening to this, I hope that you're saying, fuck, man, that sounds like me. Boom. Awesome. Great. I think we're, we're kicking some door down. Continue listening. Continue. Maybe then find out the individuals like how, you know, Tim was... There are individuals in your department that maybe you trust and stuff like that, that you can trust. Yes. Um, and you can honestly talk to these people. Um, talk about the subject, maybe. Don't talk about yourself at first. Talk about the subject to see how they react on it. You know, if they think, if they talk about it, like if it's a fucking joke, then yeah, that's not the guy you want to talk to, you know? Um, if maybe you hear someone saying, hey, you know, uh, let's take it serious or whatnot, maybe go talk to her, you know, about it or something like that. So, or, or him and, and whatever, if... Fish it out there. Like I said, don't say it's you. Say, like, hey, what do you guys think about this, this, and that? And find somebody because it's finding somebody that, like, you see, like I said, you're looking in the mirror right now. Absolutely. You have to, I mean, talking to clinicians, talking to learned people, that it, it helps. You know, they teach you certain tools, they call them, but you for me and i'm not speaking for anybody else for me i really didn't start to lift the veil until uh i talked to a bunch of men and women that were going through basically what i was going through i went to uh after the the guys from my firehouse came 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 to um to to pick me up or get me uh i went um to Maryland and there's a there's a facility out in Maryland that's run or sponsored by our international association of, of firefighters uh, our union and it's basically a, a place where firefighters and first responders can go to for PTSD help and, 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 addi and addiction help and uh, it didn't it didn't really and I'm not bashing the place it didn't really address my addiction issues but what it did do is it allowed me to sat in, sit in a room for, for a month with guys and gals from all over the country that were first responders and firefighters that knew exactly what I was going through. Knew that when my legs were shaking back and forth, much like they're doing now, uh, I could look around the room and there were seven other people doing the same thing. You know, That's when the healing, so to speak, that's when that really started for me. Um, that was huge for me was to be able to sit across from, from somebody that knows exactly what I'm going through and, and talk about it. And that's what I hope to do, you know, within my department and, and outside of my department. As I told you when we talked on the phone, if I could help one person, if one person hearing this or one person hearing my message another time helps, then I, I feel that I've succeeded, you know? Yep, yep, uh, because you've planted the seed on that one person. That one person's going to turn around and do the same thing because they're going to know what it is to have that date set up, yeah. the plan set up, and... I um, was three days away from it when, when the guys came to my house. Three days. And had they not shown up, uh, I would have been gone. And I planned every aspect of it to it, down to it, including sitting for about two weeks and watching my kids and my wife interact with each other. I basically became a complete ghost in the house just to see how they got a, a, 
along without me. So I justified it to myself. I said, they're fine. They, they're handling issues. They're, they're interacting with each other. I'm basically not here during this week. I'm here physically, but I'm not interacting with them. So I even ra- ra- rationalized it and, and, and justified it and said, I'll, I'll be fine. They'll be fine and I can go. And uh, I had everything in place. That is. Um, and when you're in that space, when you're in the mind space of, you know, in a very short period of time, you're no longer going to be here anymore. And it's. Uh, sorry. It's all right, man. And it's going to be done by your hand. Uh, you're in a really bad spot, bro. You're in a really bad spot. And all I can tell you, if anybody that is listening to this, that is in that spot, man, find somebody that you can thoroughly trust a hundred percent and, and call them or text them or sit down with them and, and, and get yourself some help because you know what, man, what I have learned is with guys like us and girls like us, the world's a much better place with us in it, you know? Yep. Yep. It sure is. It sure is. Um, I tell everybody that I think individuals, guys and girls like us that you're saying, um, I think we have like a special gene built into us that uh, I call it the serving gene. That it just, it, uh, no matter what happens, you just want to serve. Yeah, we just um, want to help, man. Yeah, you know, I, I say my eight-year-old has it. Um, I'm scared about it because it's the reflection of me. And I see how happy he is as an eight-year-old now and stuff exactly like how I was. And then I'm scared to have him go through the same path that I go through because he wants to be a Marine and he wants to, then he tells me he wants to be a Marine and a cop. So then I told him one day joking, well, you know, the Marines have that. It's called MP. And he's like, well, that's what I'm going to be. And I'm like, oh, great. So, um, you know, I'm just worried that I just don't want to see him at 38, you know, in my age, um, how I am now. And, and it's tough, but like how you said, I tell my wife and I tell everybody, I'm still not going to tell them no, not to serve. If he wants to serve in any capacity, serve because the world is a better place with people um, like you and me in it, um, still in it. I'm not just going to talk about girls and guys and uh, whatever, just I'm right now, just the, us two right now in this room. Um, that's one thing that I've learned. I've come to learn now ever since I started my organization and stuff like that super tiny organization i'm nowhere in the big leagues but i've had you know people tell me i've had two two people tell me hey man this really 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 helped me out um i was able to meet some guys on the boat or i was just able to you know i had one guy that told me that it was just very spiritual for him to catch a tarpon uh 170 pound tarpon 160 pound tarpon he said it was just with all the life he had taken this was so special to catch this big fish and then release it um, because he had to hold it for a while to, you know, um, bring the the air through his gills. And then he released it. But, uh, you know, he told me that it was very spiritual for him and stuff. So that to me right there has been worth it. And then now um, I started the podcast after a year being nervous, but I started it. And I've already gotten good feedback and that's it. I've already, I'm dead set on that. I'm going to continue it because the same thing. I honestly, I am now dead set that if I'm going to get taken out, it's going to be by somebody else's, uh, 
it's going to be taken out by, you know, the, the grace of God or the creator or whatever, but I'm no longer going to take myself out anymore. Um, I'm not going to do that because I do, I do feel, uh, I think it's better with me in it because we have that serving gene, which goes to, um, you know, the, 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 one of the things I wanted to talk about that, that within that serving gene, I think there's this switch as well that we're able to have that can let us continue to serve because I don't, I don't understand. And there's not many people that could go through some of the stuff we go through and then still want to continue to do it over and over and over again. And firefighters are one and first respond uh, firefighters and rescue are one that I hold real deal, uh, real dear to my heart because they, and no badge, no bashing on my, on my fellow police officer friends. I just, I've always said that there's cops that, um, I've heard had a boring job sometimes, you know, there, there's a day that could just go by and it's a bunch of, you know, fender benders and here and that. And I've always told people that you only call the rescue when you feel like you're dying or when, when you feel like something's going on that you don't feel right. Like I've had scenarios where I've cut my arm. I've never called the rescue. I've like been bleeding real bad. I've never called the rescue until one time when I was separated from my wife during our separation. Um, it was right before I had gotten Duke and I was watching a movie. I didn't know real what a real anxiety panic attack was. I had known what the precursors were and I thought those were panic attacks. But I started getting real deep into it where my hear got muffled. My hearing got muffled and I started hearing a beep. I got real sweaty and I was like, you know what? Let me get up and get some fresh air. So I stood up and I guess I stood up too fast and I immediately fainted mm-hmm. and I woke up on the floor. And when I woke up, I remember I called my mom. I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. Cause that's what it felt as well. My arm was in pain and my chest was in pain. I couldn't breathe. And I go, I think I'm having a heart attack. I go, I am letting you know right now, mom, I, I need to call the rescue. So I, I called the rescue immediately. And that was the only time I had called the rescue. So I remember what it was being in the Marines and having to be in QRF, which is quick reaction force. And that's yes. what, that's what I could equivalent you guys to because you do 24 on 48 off. Yes. I remember I wanted to be a firefighter when I got out. Um, and, and that was a no go for me after I had gotten diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and I could just picture your guys shift because it's a 24 48 off. And for that whole 24, every single time you guys get called, yes, you still have your small ones that are nothing. Um, but it's, most of the time, it's somebody's dying. and yeah. It's usually the worst day of somebody's life. Yeah. I mean, and we have a lot of the, you know, bu- bullshit. Oh, yeah. can I, I curse? Yeah, of course you <laughs> could curse here, man. I've already said shit and I fuck. I have the and, mouth oh, of a man. sailor. So. Oh, dude, it's all right, um, man. Yeah, a lot of times it's bullshit, but for the most part, man, it's it's the worst day in their life. Because everybody has asked me, um, and by no means, I've, I've never glorified my service in, in, in the Marine Corps. Um, I've told everybody I'm not a sniper. There's, I don't know anybody with like these confirmed kills or whatever. It's, it's idiotic. Um, but yes, I have seen individuals die. I have seen my friends die. I have fired my weapon. I don't know what's behind of where I fired my weapon. Um, you live with that. Uh, one of the things though, that has, I tell everybody and now I've spoken about it and I told my therapist, my wife, the one thing that have, I've always said has affected me is um, we had gotten into a, a firefight with two individuals. And when we got closer to the individuals, cause we thought they went down, 
um, one was supplying aid to the other. It was the one supplying aid had an in and out wound on his right shoulder. Um, it was just like literally a hole, a small hole. And then the guy on the ground had a right center mass um, shot with a M16. And when we got there, our corpsman started supplying aid. We had already had zip tied the other guy, patched up his arm. He started supplying aid to the guy on the ground. And I'll never forget that I stood there the whole time because there's no reason for like five people to be supplying aid. The corpsman is doing it. That's the guy that needs to do it. Um, and me and that guy locked eyes. That guy had just been shooting at us, at our infantry, minutes, seconds before that. Um... I mean, you're in country and you're thinking that everybody's enemy and, and I, and then by no means do I hate Iraqis or anything like that, but that's just the, the, the mentality that you give yourself when you're out on the, on, on working on patrol that everybody's the enemy. So you have, you know, you're conditioned to, to hatred to and hatred and anger though. It's, it's the same way that I would say a police officer feels about a criminal um, or something like that. You know, this guy was just breaking the law. Um, it ended up being that the guy wasn't even from Iraq. So, you know, I shouldn't have felt anything for that guy. But that guy locked eyes with me. And I'll never forget that the color when his eyeballs changed. And then at that, I tell everybody that at that split second right there, it fucks with me still because that guy was no longer than a terrorist, which he never... He wasn't like a terrorist leader. What he ended up being was he was a doctor. Um, and what that the place that we had raided was a makeshift little hospital or whatever, ER, triage place that they were using, a house. And we had gotten the wounded guys that couldn't leave. These two ran out the back. We had shot them. And then uh, the doctor went down. The other guy was just wounded. And the other guy ended up being, so the kid, that was his uncle. Or something like that, but they weren't from there, and that guy was a doctor, and so that's why they were trying to keep him alive. And and that was his uncle that we had just shot. But I tell people that it's not even afterwards because I saw an interrogation go on afterwards. We 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 found information out from the the nephew that we were trying to get, or not us, but the you know the interpreter team and stuff. And I didn't feel anything afterwards. Um, I felt anger before that. It was that split second that I saw like his eyeballs change and that last gargle or gasp for air that fucks with me. Those seconds, um, you know, and that's called survivor's guilt. Yeah. So that's where, because I only experienced that brief, that experience that for seconds. Um, and I've, I've spoken in other interviews already now that I've done. I had to clean uh, put one time pool radios of a vehicle that had, you know, blood still in it and stuff like that. Um, but nothing fucks with me like that second. And that's why I, I, I respect firefighters and rescue the most out of the first responders, because I feel like you guys are seeing that all the time. And like, for instance, the cops will see the scene when they get there. But you guys, I, what I what I attach with myself, and I don't understand how you guys can continue to do it, is that you guys see, you see the cops get there and they see the scene. You guys see when they get inside the ambulance and you're still working on them. You know, so you deal with individuals a lot that don't make it. Yeah. Um, And then. A lot of times we're the last face they see or the last hand they, that they hold, hold or, 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 you know. 
And then you're, but, but then this could have happened within the first hour of your shift. Yes. You're supposed to then, whatever, drop this body off at the hospital. They take care of it. You do your small report. I'm sure there's an after actions report or something. And then. And then you're back in service. You're back because either as, as the way you're getting back to the station, you might get a call already on, on route to the station. So at no point did anybody talk to you or like, you know what I'm saying? Like at no point did you guys really were able to express about it because I know, I know that the first thing you want to do is you guys want to talk about something else, which I think is wrong. I think we need to start honestly, just at least those four guys that are in the truck that saw that talk about what we just saw. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Oz, um, I've been on the, the department I'm on now. I've been on long enough to have been on both, both sides now. So when I first got hired with them, it was a relatively old, old, older department, you know, and a lot of the guys were Vietnam vets. A lot of them were, you know, had seen a lot and done a lot and they were on the department when we didn't have as many ambulance. I don't want to call them ambulances, but rescues that, that we have now. So they were busier than busy and, you know, covered with blood for most of their shift. And they would just tell you, Hey, suck it up, buttercup, get back on the truck, you know? Yeah. Cause I want some of our listeners. Uh, we do have some out of state listeners and here in South Florida, the way it works is we have the rescue and Paramedic and fire in one. So, because I know there's a lot of places that might have their paramedics right. and their fire separate. Yeah, this so is just one service here. So here, predominantly down here in South 90% Florida, of your calls, I would I think. say most of our departments down here run relatively the same. Most everybody on the job is a firefighter paramedic. However, they do the same the same work. So uh, I'm I'm currently assigned um, to very shortly to what we call a a specialized truck. Um, that truck is going to go to anything that's technical in the city, uh, but, and, and fires, but I will have paramedic duty. So if we p- p- pull up on a vehicle accident, I, I'm going to have to render care. Um, the guys that ride our rescue trucks, they're the same thing. They go out e- all day, every day on, on toothaches, heart attacks, shooting, stabbings. But if a b- b- building fire comes in, they have they put on their bunker gear and they 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 go inside the fire and fight fire. So it's a dual a dual role type responsibility, you know. Um, and down here in South Florida, it doesn't matter what department you're with, you are busy. You're running your ass off and getting your nuts kicked in every day, all day. And you were saying it. You clear the hospital if you're on a rescue truck. You clear the hospital. You give dispatch your uh, you know in service code. And you're getting another run. Yeah, I've, I've seen it because I've done a ride along. I've done a ride along with police and I've done a ride along with fire department. And I remember the fire department one was, I, I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. And I was only there for, I think, four hours. And in those four hours, we went to like five different scenes. And we got to one and it was, because uh, I, I guess the way you guys do it, it's like overlap. Mm-hmm. So it's like if this station is out somewhere there, you pick you, up your, runs. your run might overlap a little yes. bit, a few blocks into there. So we got to one and then their truck finally showed up or something. Like, All right, we got to go now. And then we <laughs> went somewhere else. Something and I'm else. like, this is nuts. Because I had, we had just seen a bus station that had gotten plowed in. Right. And then now we were going to, they said, uh, I think it was like a kid. Right. And I saw everybody's mood change. Yes. The kids, kids destroy everybody. I saw everybody's mood change. I mean, we, I literally had just seen a guy that had his leg was an L 
but like an L shooting to the if you if it was your right leg from his knee down was shooting out to the right. Right. And they picked up they picked up his his calf and put it on the thing. The guy wasn't even screaming because like I guess the shock he was yeah. in or whatnot. There was blood all over the place. And these guys were smoking and joking, literally like anybody I think in this environment would a be doing. Because like I said, we there's a switch that goes on. And that's what I that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit with you because your service to me is I mean, wow, an amazing service because you've the places you've been to and what I can't even imagine only because I've been in war, be, I can imagine how bad these places have been. I know the media doesn't tell us how bad this place, these places have been. The media doesn't really show the destruction because it doesn't. But you were, you've been in the aftermath, you said after, in any aftermath pretty much after 9-11. Yes. And the major ones that I know that you would have straight up shot out to because of our geographical location were Katrina and uh, Haiti. Uh, Katrina to me, I was like, wow, because... Once again, because of what we do, I guess, we're educated on a lot of things. So I already knew ahead of time that these guys are going to be seeing some nasty shit because bloated bodies, once they get in water afterwards, it, it, they eventually to the point, sometimes they pop. Yes. Um, and like I said, this, this podcast is explicit because it's real. I want people to... I want people to connect themselves to the realism of what this is. Um, and like I said, we talk about this, like if it's a, we joke about this right. shit. Um, yeah. You get that dark sense of humor, dark and, sense and, of humor, you know, the normal person sitting, if they ever came into a firehouse and sat at the kitchen table, you know, the kitchen pretty much at the firehouse is where everything is all day long. We're because that's the one place when we can all come together. And yeah, just I've seen that. Out. And, and in my department, it's a huge part of the culture um, to come together in that, in that kitchen. And no, no, I've seen it. I've seen give, it. I, I mean, I always look at hell and looking on social media, so, uh, a firefighter. I know I'm sure you know who he is. Um, they just had, I think, a cook off mm-hmm. at their at their at their kitchen. So um, I know these kitchens are, are huge because I think it's I think it's because you get to sit around with the people that are like-minded it's it's almost that step right before that conversation of yes. saying i wanted to kill myself too oh you too fine now we get along no this is like foreplay is what i think it Absolutely. is for you guys so that's why the kitchen's so important for you guys because you're all together with people you understand because you don't have this kitchen time right. with your family no you don't because i spent and i got to eat with these guys in that at that station after that's right along um I mean, this food was amazing. I was like, man, is this takeout? They're like, no, we cooked this. It was like amazing food. And then everybody like sat around together, stay quiet. We ate. And it was like, I hadn't had a dinner like that with family. But it was almost like that sense of quiet. Like, I understand you. I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. Everybody put silently their hand on their back and ate together and joked around. Um. And like I said, we don't have that at home. But the thing is, I call it foreplay because nobody's really then talking about what the fuck you just saw on that call or anything like that. And like I said, things changed when, when kids come along. So I want to know, um, I mean, if you're comfortable enough talking about it, um, cause you said when, when, when we talked about, you know, your, your stuff earlier before recording, you were like, yeah, you know, I went Katrina, I went this, that. And then you were like, Haiti, like the way you said Haiti. So that was for you, you know, 
it seemed like that was your changer for you. That one's the one that did it for you. Yeah, that one, that that's the At probably what? the biggest pivotal moment of my of my career. How how long how long in service had you had been in this time? Because I was reading a stat, and I was I was told by a few individuals I know too that it's almost like at year fifteen that. The, the, the things start coming so, in on you. I can't speak for other services, but pretty much what I talk about, if I'm talking to a group of, of like probationary firefighters or guys that have just come on the job, I, I explain it to them this way. Um, you come on the job and from fire college, from Purlby school till about, about five years on the job, you're like a two peckered puppy, man. You're running around all over the place, um, trying to number one, make a name for yourself, uh, uh, as a competent, good, good worker. Um, you're, you're trying to prove to everybody that you, you deserve to be there. Um, you want to be Johnny on the spot. You, you, you want to go to all of the, all of the really gory, nasty, worst case scenarios to see and you know you'll walk guys will walk over i've seen it they'll walk over and they'll lift a sheet off of a dead person just so they can see the damage you know you're curious about your career you know you're curious of what's what it's going to bring you then from about five to ten years you kind of settle into your groove you know you've made your name you've you've gotten relatively good at your craft and, and, and you're cruising, man, you're on cruise control, you know, but then it seems like from 15 on to the end of your career, you, you be, you kind of go backwards. I mean, you're, you're at still at the top of your game. You're, that's what I was going to say. You get to the point eventually where you come like master Yoda at your skill. Like yeah. that's what I'm guessing. I guess that's why I was asking what was this was, was that what was that what this was when you guys got called for Haiti? You were possibly, you know, like at the peak of your your career. You're probably yeah. training individuals. But the, the the thing I think that a lot right was a little shoulders. bit uh, to my. I didn't realize it until you know after years of now speaking to to professionals and and, and friends. Um, I was a brand new boss, so to speak. Um, that was my first deployment in a uh, managerial or in a leadership uh, role. And I was basically responsible for um, uh, like 40 something people. And for me, I had to formulate the rescue plan, execute the rescue plan, uh, make sure everybody was accounted for and safe, make, you know, it, so it all rode on my shoulders. Um, and I really didn't realize how much of an impact that had on me until many years later. Because as a leader, you tend not to go to the guys you're leading or the individuals you're leading to to talk about your problems. They right. come to you. Right. And so you, if you have no other leaders around you that you could talk like that, right. it's, it's tough. I could, it's I could tough. imagine. So, you know, Haiti, I can't even, to, Haiti was hell. Uh, that's the only way I can really, honestly, in my vision of hell, whatever hell is to most people, Haiti is my vision of hell. Um, as soon as we got off the plane, I was uncomfortable. You know, just because it, it just, it felt different to me. And as soon as you got off the plane, you could smell death, you know. And death has a very, as you know, death has a very distinct smell. So um, once we started working, we, we started rescuing a couple people and we worked in an area um, in Port-au-Prince where it was a large 
building that sup- had supplies in it, much like a Costco or, 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 or Sam's Club or something along those lines, for those of you that don't know Costco. Well, it was a five-story building, and it collapsed down to three feet. And, you know, there were multi-people in the building. It was, it was during business hours. So not only did you have workers trapped in there, but you had, um, you had civilians that were shopping there. And they were actively speaking to us. You know, they were yelling and screaming to us. Well, about f- f- four days into it, we, f- we heard the voice of a, uh, of a little girl. Uh, excuse me. Sorry. It's all right. Like I said, people, I mean, I was joking with these guys, and as soon as they said something about a kid, the kid stuff just changes everything. Yeah, so she she had been been in this, you know, this place with her mom and, and sister. They were getting supplies for their house or whatever, and the building came down, and it killed her, kill, killed her mother and killed her older sister, um, but she was left alive. And to get to her, to save her, to get to her, her mother, mother and, and, and sister had to kind of be manipulated and take, taken apart. Um, we're not meant to do that. No. You know, we're not, that's not in our makeup. Our makeup is you're going to get there and you're going to kick this thing in the ass. And you're going to come up with a solution to solve the well, problem. That's serving, know? that's serving Gene I talk about, um, it comes along from all these movies we watch. The hero, the hero, the hero. The hero's not supposed to do damage. Do like damage. That. Um, I mean, <laughs> my son was watching this morning Davy Crockett. You know, uh, that's hero movies, heroes or whatever. It's like, and then like you said, you're doing damage. Right. Um, so we're we're not we're not meant for that. And uh, I had a lot of young guys on my crew, and you know, I didn't want that for them. Cause I knew that it would be damaging. So, you know, myself and one or two other of the senior guys assisted the doctor. We, we travel with doctors, uh, late one evening, we all, a couple of us assisted the doctor with doing that, you know, and we got her out and, and she lived and, you know, it was a great, great story. We're all, we're patting ourselves on the back and we felt great about ourselves, you know, and, much like you said before, as soon as it was over, life went on in Haiti, and we immediately started thinking about the next task. Well, I came home, fast forward, you know, a couple of weeks, I came home, and uh, I started getting very bad dreams. I mean, like, night terror dreams. And I just kind of thought it was uh, the norm, you know, Um I didn't reach out and talk to anybody. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't, I just kind of white knuckled it and and rolled with the punches. Well, once it moved into about six months of that, uh, I started medicating myself with pills to, so I could just sleep, you know, um, my friends that, that, you know, the, the people that I'm closest with, if you ever talk to them, they'll tell you Tim goes 48, 36, 48 hours still to this day, sometimes without any sleep. But no, I do the same thing. I can't sleep. So we were talking about our, yeah. the pills that I used to take or right. earlier before recording. And um, you had asked me about one of them. And I was like, yeah, that, that one, I, I reduced it from three to one because that's the only pill I honestly take still. I don't take anything else but this. Um, it's the only thing that helps me sleep yeah. because... Without it, I will wake up. I, I will try, lay down. Forty-five minutes, I'm up. 
And then I got to lay back down and I'll back up. I, I, I can't sleep. I'll be up. I'll be up. For me, I would have these dreams and my wife or my kids would tell me they would, you know, they would wake me up. Sometimes I'd fall asleep on the couch, whatever. They would wake me up and they'd tell me that I was very active. I was trying to um, like wash my hands, so to speak. And I would always say the same thing. I can't get the blood off my hands. I can't help me, help me, help me. I can't get the blood off my hands. I don't remember it, you know. But, Those are uh, times that you've pop, had been triggered. You're saying yeah. that you've had that or well, dreams. I was These dreaming. Nightmares. That, yeah, in the middle of the night, that's what I was doing. Um, and I, I would also be screaming to get everybody out of the building because while while we were there and we were working, we were getting aftershocks or earthquakes. So um, I was worried as a young boss. I was worried that I was gonna I, I was gonna be on watch when somebody died. You know. And I was, that weighed very heavy, a lot heavier on me than I, than I realized. So about six months after being home, I started um, taking medicate, medicating myself. And I was, I was ordering them what I was taking. I was ordering it at the time you could order it online. And I was ordering it online and having it shipped to my house, you know, by in 2012. So this went on for two years in 2012. I was working around my house preparing for a hurricane and I fell 32 feet from a ladder. And when I hit the ground, I landed standing up on my feet. Um, I completely destroyed my left leg where it comes out of your hip and turns into your femur. I, the first six inches, I completely turned to powder. And then five compression fractures in my lower back. So here came the opioids. So... <laughs> I got, I was taken to um, Kendall Regional, who I'd just turned into a trauma center at the time. And then my department got involved and they, thankfully, and they uh, had me flown to, to a different location, to, a dip, to Jackson. And when I got to Jackson, um, I was in sheer agony. Uh, at that point, I was ha having muscle spasms in my leg and, you know, it was just, it was terrible. Well, the nurse who I had a working relationship with she told me hey don't worry honey i'm gonna you're gonna feel better in just a second and she hit me with some fentanyl uh, injection and i don't remember much of everything that was going on but what i can tell you ozzy is as soon as it hit my bloodstream i remember thinking to myself this is the way i want to feel for the rest of my life no, I, as much pain as I was in, all my cares went away, you know, and uh, I felt at ease. I, I, I didn't have, and the whole time I was there in the hospital and they were feeding me, feeding me dope, I didn't have any thoughts of Haiti. I, I slept well. I felt good. I was laughing and joking with my, my family, which before that I had kind of gotten to where I already started to. Yeah, you went from a heavy metal concert that was going on in your brain and life to literally into a park where you could hear butterflies flapping their yeah, wings. Absolutely. And, and everything chirping. was beautiful. I, I was in a good mood. Um, and I start, the big key was I was, I was laughing and joking because I had lost that Dude, after Haiti. I, I stopped smiling. And I told you earlier before we were on air, I cannot even remember the man I, <laughs> I was before Haiti. You know, uh, Haiti kind of stopped my life in, hit the pause button, you know, um, because I completely became a different person.
So once I did the, the, uh, physical rehab and I got out and I, I was still healing and stuff, uh, I started seeing a doctor that would, had no problem giving me, giving me pain meds. And, uh, I, I took off like a rocket, man. like, a like a train going downhill without brakes, you know, um, I was administered or prescribed a, at the time next to fentanyl, it was the, the strongest medication that they could give me. And, uh, I started abusing it, you know, um, because it was, it was helping with both things that were going on with the me. pain, it was helping the pain, the darkness, but to be perfectly honest with you, the pain was subsiding, but it was, what it was doing was it was helping me with the, with the darkness. I was productive. I was getting shit done. I was in a good mood all the time. You mentioned something. Um, you said you were smiling, like you were in a good mood. Um, the other day, you know, and I, and I've been asking my wife to come and get interviewed. She doesn't want to. My wife doesn't talk much, period, anyways. Um, and I'm, I, I told everybody that I was going to be very honest and very raw with um, my life, at least with me. Um, that I'm not going to, unless I'm talking about my service, I won't um, hide anything or anything like that. And I got angry at my kids. Something had happened in the morning. And I always tell everybody, um, doesn't matter where I'm at here at home. I'm always at 99.9 ready to go to a hundred. Um, and that's draining to begin with, but I'm always like that. And something had happened and I had snapped that day and I got angry, real angry. I screamed, I cursed, um, I hit the counter, um, I don't like hitting my kids. Um, I have spanked my kids, but there's no way I would ever beat my kids or anything like that. But I'll hit the counter. I'll hit the wall. Um, you know, you show aggression like that in front of your kids. And I remember I dropped my son off at school. And I came back home that day and I cried. I wanted to record. Um, I already had launched episode one. Um, and I cried that day. Uh, because I was just tired. Like... I'm tired of what you said, being angry all the time, you know, and that, that medication or whatever, you know, that drug that you were on was taking that away from you, you know, um, or at least you thought it was. And it gets to that point where we feel that you're just tired. Like I literally don't remember being happy. Um, my mom says I used to be a happy person all the time. I see pictures, and, but I don't remember that, you know, I don't remember that person. I don't um, either. And my head hurts. My forehead hurts. And I and I, I literally, I sat outside and I was just like, I just want to have, like, first and foremost, are my kids really going to remember me as who? You know, as this fucking angry guy all the time, you know? Um. And then, you know, I, I, I tell myself, man, please just change, just change. And I tell myself, I mean, dude, I've gotten to the point, Tim, where I've I've gone to Washington, D.C. or Maryland, whatever, and I've gotten an SGB shot in the fucking neck, uh, stellate gangoline block. I've done it. I've done it twice. And it, it felt great. It, it that, that thing that I told you from a heavy metal to walking in the park, that's what it felt like when I first got it. My wife says it's gone away. Um... 
this was a few months ago when I got it. Um, my therapist says it hasn't gone away, that she just feels that my old habits are still very strong. But the fact that I'm noticing it now is the fact that it, it, the, the, the shot's still working. But I wish I had that feeling all the time so I could understand how addictive this could be because really you weren't being addicted to the drug, even though you were, but you were more addicted to the fact that you were happy again in life. So, you know, one of... One of your in inbred, one of your the things that happen in all of us is you're constantly looking for your body's constantly looking for homeostasis. You constantly want to get back to the norm, and the norm for everybody is comfort. One of the things as human beings that that we want is comfort, and I don't mean comfort like a comf- sitting on a comfortable couch. I mean comfort in you want to not feel the you you don't want your fight or flight syndrome fight or flight instinct activated okay so after Haiti I was in fight or flight mode all the time no matter what you know you get and the acronym for it is obviously honestly it's called shit it's uh, stress hormone induced tachycardia where your your heart rate is flying through the roof because your body, you're dumping a bunch of chemicals into your body because your body's saying, hey, fucker, some, we got to do something here. Yeah. So um, you want comfort. You want out of that. So uh, those, that medication allowed me to do that in the beginning. But like any, anything else, if it feels good, chances are it might be bad for you. Yeah. And, and it eventually uh, it's got its hooks in me. And, uh, you know, I started... Uh, I started using needles. I, I was injecting medication instead of taking it orally, and um, it, it, it destroyed a huge part of my uh, of my life. And that w- that was one of one of the main reasons that I just wanted to to end it. You know, um, I was I was getting medication, a truckload of medication every seven days. Um, by day three, I was out of it and going through massive opiate withdrawal for four days until I could get to the doctor and then take it again. And that vicious cycle, I did. Throughout all this, you're hiding it from... I was hiding... Well, I was hiding it. As as you thought you were hiding it from her. I... I, Man, I'm sorry that I'm stuttering. I... Brother, you have no reason to apologize. I thought I was hiding it, but everyone around me that is close and in my circle knew that I was doing something. They didn't know what, but they knew. They knew something was up. That they just knew Timmy wasn't Timmy, Timmy. wasn't here, you know. Um so yeah, it, it took me down. Ultimately what ended up happening, um so you know all about Haiti, everything, a uh, bunch of different deployments and then I w- ended up getting deployed to the Keys for my uh for the hurricane. For the hurricane, Three, right? Uh, uh, yeah. One of the hurricane, the most recent one, yeah, yes, the one in the keys. I remember that 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 triggered me. Um, that was a trigger for me. So I went with some friends of mine that l- lived down there, but they had spent the time up here, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to come with me?" They were only letting in residents, so you had to have an ID. And we drove in there, we checked their neighborhood out, and it was a war scene. Yeah, it was. That's what I imagine war to look like. It was a war scene. Uh, there was because I remember like. I remember when we would drive through some of the neighborhoods in Fallujah, 
or something like that. And it would just be like a car that's on the side of the road and you have to drive around it on the wrong side. And, um, that's how it looked in, in the keys. It was boats here and a car upside down. And you could tell this car maybe had caught on fire and power lines here. It looked just like a war zone to me. And I had started, uh, on the way back, I started a live video. Uh, I started a recovery effort to try to just uh, get you know some some stuff for people. And I ended up partnering up with another friend of mine, and it blew up. Sedano's got involved, and we ended up delivering like forty eight thousand pounds of ice. Uh, I forgot how many thousands of gallons of water and crackers and stuff, but it triggered me, and I was only there for those five minutes. So I can't even imagine now what you felt because. Now you're on home turf. Right. So what happened with me was we went down there and... Um, and this is after we got you're struggling there. with your medication, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, we got down there literally a couple hours after the storm went through there. So we got, you know, our fire chief pulled the trigger and we got down there really quickly. However, Ozzy, there was so much destruction, there was nothing for us to do. I mean, pretty much, you know, people were accounted for. We, you know, we would help where we could help, but there was really not a whole lot we could do to help these people as a whole, you know. Um, so I spent the time down there, you know, doing what I could and having my head in the mission. But then when I came home, you know, it's hard much i'm sure it's maybe the same thing with soldiers you're away for so long in war and for us it's a deployment and then you come home and you completely lose purpose it doesn't feel like you're you you have anything to do yeah we we call that garrison life when you come back to for instance um it's gonna sound so shitty for me to say because we're military we're supposed to love the national anthem and stuff like that but i remember at zero eight every morning you have on base. Reveille. Re, well, no, Reveille's before that. That's wake up. Okay. It's uh, it's colors. So it's the national anthem and stuff like that. And if you're in uniform and you're outdoors, you have to stop, immediately freeze, go find the nearest flag and salute. It's not the national anthem we have a problem with. It's just that it's the national anthem. It's then the Navy anthem. It's then the Marine Corps anthem. <laughs> so you're like you're standing there for 15 minutes at attention but it's a so, trigger for you now. but no no it's every day that you're doing this right when you're here on base when you're in iraq when you're working on deployment all that goes out your, your clothes gets dirty your uniform is dirty you do what you're trained to do that's the, what i tell people this is what people i need people to understand what you're talking about right now you do that you get out there you get dirty nobody cares if your shave isn't all ex extremely to the regs you're out there doing your job executing what you've been taught to do then all of a sudden you get back and then they're like all right your boots are a little scruffed up your uniform is dirty you look like shit. Um, <laughs> so yeah. now, now you feel pointless again because you're like, wait, this, I want to do what I was trained to do. I, I want to get hooked on that adrenaline drug that I've been getting hooked on while I'm deployed. Absolutely. And now it's all gone. And it's, it, now, now comes what you're saying. So this is, you've done all this. So now you've gone to Katrina. You've gone to Haiti. Now we have the hurricane issue down here in the Keys. During this hurricane issue, though, you're abusing, you're abusing opioids. Yes. And then what happens when you come home? So I get home and uh, this overwhelming sense of 
dread came over me within about three days of being home. I immediately went reversed back to Haiti, and uh, the thoughts of Haiti again. Um, not sleeping, even worse than before. My drug use went from, my drug abuse went from, if it was at 100 before I went to the Keys, it went to 200 now. Um, and then, because the dread reason was I felt that I didn't get everything that you just said because there was nothing to do. Yeah, you, yeah, you said it. I couldn't really do much. I couldn't do anything. So I didn't have the adrenaline rush. I didn't have the sense of, fuck yeah, we kicked this thing in the ass. My feeling was, we're down here with millions of dollars of, of equipment and, and tons of people and we don't, we're not doing anything. Um, which in hindsight is really not true. I mean, we did do some credible things down there, but I just didn't feel it when we came home. And... Uh, I went down the tubes and I went down the tubes fast. And that's when I just said, you know what, man, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out. I, I'm tired of, I'm tired of being in pain. I'm mentally and physically. Um, I'm tired of just not, uh, not being who I used to be. You know, I, I got very, I had social anxiety. Then I, I withdrew from people. I had, you know, I had very few friends left. I, I just, and I was just in a really bad, bad headspace, man. And I, and I planned it. And I, I and I said, um, my goal was to not end my life. My goal in my he head was I wanted to nullify my life. I wanted it to be like I disappeared. That I was never here at all, you know, never. Um, so I planned everything. Uh, down to the minute detail and what I wanted was number one was a way that wasn't going to hurt because I was tired of pain by then number two I, I, I didn't want any of my friends or family or fire department people to find me I didn't want that on them you know and I just wanted to go with a little bit of dignity you know um I wrote a, a handful of letters. I didn't write a suicide note to speak of, but I wrote a handful of letters that were going to be uh, mailed uh, to to close friends and that I wanted them to know why I was doing what I was doing. Not, not that I was doing it because of them and stuff, you know. Um, it was important for me. Suicide... I will never judge a person that commits suicide, but the one thing I do know uh, is suicide leaves so many answer, unanswered questions to the people that are left behind. And that pain that you're feeling, you transfer that to them. No, more than, more than you're you traveling at times, times 20, 20, 30, 40. I mean, it, because they're left yeah. with now carrying your load because not not even carrying your load. They're left asking how bad was he hurting? How bad could it have been? And why didn't I know this? And why didn't I help? Why, why didn't, didn't I, I do help? something? So, um, so I wrote these letters, and and like I said, I had it all planned. And thankfully, uh, thank you know, thank I tell him every once in a while that you know you saved my life, and uh, you know he my captain showed up with uh, with a handful of guys and girls that I was close with, and they said you know come on man we're gonna go get you some help. And did this. Did this go past your captain? Um, it did. It had to. It had to yeah. at that point. Um, when he came and got me, um, we, we met with, uh, with these two members from the administration. Um, so you've been somewhat kind of a icebreaker. Uh, 
I, I, I think so. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but I think I'm one of the first people in the department to come forward and say, listen, uh, I was planning this and because of this, because you still have your job, uh, you know? So I think, uh, to their, I guess, defense, they didn't really know how to handle me. They didn't know what to do, you know, and I had a twofold issue. I, w- I had PTSD or w- what was later diagnosed as PTSD, but also I was a, a, an addict abusing drugs, too, right. you know. Obviously, when I went to speak with them, what I told them I wanted help with the most was was the depression and the PTSD. Because um, that's what led you to abuse. Yeah. Because... It's very simple. Um, I've I've gotten pain medications, you know. I just chosen not to take them because I don't want to get caught on to it or whatever. Right. But my fear is that that I will catch and like them because of my PTSD. Right. Um, so yeah, and and so it was kind of a uh, killing two birds with one stone. They they sent me off to the place that I told you about earlier in Maryland and to address the PTSD and the addiction portion of it. However, it really didn't live up to the expectations as far as the addiction side of it. So I was clean for the month that I was there, you know, um, on the flight out there, I did everything I could to possibly die on the plane of a drug overdose. I mean, I took everything that I had left, um, I took while I was on the plane. So when I got to Baltimore, I was, I was a zombie. Um, and then, you know, I went through eight days of massive withdrawals while there. And then, you know, and then I could start intermingling with, with the other firefighters and get my, get the PTSD side of the way out of it. But I didn't gain a lot from the addiction side there, the addiction treatment. I didn't gain a lot. And I came home, um, I came home on Christmas day of, um, 17 and within two and a half weeks I was back using again and using hard you know um, just because there was nothing for me when I came home um, there was no no real aftercare so to speak and not 100% saying that it was their fault the department's fault um, I just don't think they knew no, no, they, they don't. Kn- they didn't know what to do. You know, a guy pisses hot and gets popped for drugs. Yeah, send him the rehab, and they know. You know, but with me, I had a legal prescription for everything that I was taking. Um, it's known that I fell and that I had all this pain. So, what do we do with him? You know, do we allow him to continue to use use his medication? Do we not? Do that we- he could possibly abuse? Yeah. Or- where do we send him for PTSD help? We've never really had anybody come forward and go, listen, man, I'm, I'm going to kill myself because of the fucking voices I'm hearing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The- so I think to a certain extent, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and say that um, I kind of fell into a gray area, you know? Um, they did offer me, obviously, um, employee assistance through the, the, city, the city psychologists, but they... They didn't do much for me because of, you know, their background. They, you know, they can't relate. I mean, they're psychologists, but they couldn't, 
they couldn't give me anything. You know, one of them wanted me to, if I felt triggered, to go to my dorm room while I was on duty and meditate. I mean, how, how the hell am I going to do that? You know? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know. Or she that- would tell me, well, can't you sit in a warm bath and light some candles? Lady, do you, do you understand what I'm doing? So um, one of the chiefs called me in, and uh, I was on light duty at the time and basically assigned menial tasks cleaning out garbage, uh, washing cars, folding t-shirts, you know, and he, he called me in and he said, listen, you're, what's your plan? Um, what's your end game? What do you plan on doing? And he said, do you plan on trying to come off medication finally? Are you going to stay on it? Uh, what's your plan? And he said, cause I'm going to be honest with you. If you're going to continue with medication, um, there's not going to be anything for you to do. He said, I'll keep, I'll make sure you stay on the job, but you're going to be folding shirts. You're going to be folding t-shirts. And up till then, my, my, you know, my job, my, my career was high speed. I would travel all over the country teaching uh, for the fire departments, uh, the USAR program, uh, technical rescue within my department. You know, I had a very, very hands-on career and and I'm only a fireman in my department and I had accomplished so much with my career more than most uh, most uh, bosses you know more than most officers so I had I've had a very great career and he told me he's like you're not going to be doing any of this you are going to be folding t-shirts I'll keep I'll make sure you stay on the job but you will never get on a fire truck again and you will never instruct anybody here again um he said but if you choose to come off, if you choose to come off, then I'll help you, number one. Uh, and every, every benchmark that I give you, if you're clean at that benchmark, I'll give you something back. Now, let me ask you something. What did it feel like? Because we, you, we talked about, some. Of, you said something that I always say that, and it's not to, to bash on these individuals that are helping us in the mental health industry but you don't have no connection with these people none um you know i i, I sit there and now that i'm, I'm studying psychology i sit there sometimes um not anymore because I've, I've i've gotten finally a, a good counselor that that she helps me correctly but before i sit there now and i analyze some of the stuff that i went through with some of these counselors and i'm like wow dude you were using methods that were written by an individual that first and foremost had never been in combat or anything 70 80 years ago <laughs> and it's crazy you so what did it feel like coming from him from this chief that it uh it made me feel good and you know um he he knew cuz he knew he, he knew what you've gone through and he's known me known me my whole career so he um he was able to to get into my head and he knew what I needed to get back to, to work. And he kind of tailor made my third trip at that time. It had been my third trip to rehab. Uh, he made it stick and, you know, reintegration for guys like us into back into our careers after we've had this huge life altering experience reintegration is so so important it's almost more important than the initial uh rehab or or counseling that you get it's so important and from people multiple firemen that i've talked to 
um, and cops that I've talked to and every, all the departments are doing it wrong, man. Yeah, you know? you're, you're cutting your life. They're cutting their lifeline away. The, the one last thing. As soon have, as you, and it's not just fire departments. I hear it. I know. I know so many guys I served with that have gotten themselves to a higher place, a higher rank, mm-hmm. and something off of work while they were drunk or whatever, fucked them up, yeah, and them out. the Marine Corps kicked them out. After 20 years, yes, they're gonna kick you out, yeah. and then. Now that's it. That was the last straw. So, I mean, it's great. It's amazing to hear how I think things have been done differently with you. Well, to um, a, to an extent, yeah. To an extent. So um but there was still a there was still a very big part of it up until I had that conversation with him when I when I came back. That conversation didn't happen for 6 months after I came back, you know. Um, the initial integrate reintegration and back into the department was folding t-shirts and, and basically almost being shamed, you know, um, fire department, I'm sure much like the military and police department, it's a hard place, man. You could be the most popular guy, everybody's friend, you know, everybody loves you. And we, we tout brotherhood all the time, so you when know, you fuck up, the brother wants when, to talk to you. When you stumble, <laughs> when you stumble, everybody's there to watch you fall a lot of the times and, and I can tell you, I had a pretty big circle of people. Um, but when I started having issues, there is, there was only a handful of people that would talk to me, address me, you know, everybody else was talking shit, you know? So it's a tough place. And you feel here I was this, this firefighter that had accomplished so much. And now I was a junkie using needles, man, you know? And, uh, that, and that outside of everything else, you know, a guy's using needles, using dope like that. It, it's, there's a stigma to it, man. People immediately kind of shy away from you. So I had close friends that I stopped, we stopped talking, you know? Um, so there was a big period of time before I had that conversation with him and it was tough, man. It was shameful. Uh, you know, I don't think they did it on purpose. I just, again, I think it's that we don't know what to do with, with them. And you've become a box that they check, you know, Oh, he's, he's on drugs. Send them out, send them to rehab, get them out of here. And while you're gone, you're out of sight, out of mind, you know? And it's for me, the PTSD side of it, the reason why I came forward that I asked for help completely went away. Nobody, nobody even talked about that portion of it. It was only, Oh no, a guy's on drugs, you know? Um, so it, it was tough, brother. It was, it was really tough. And, uh, f- fortunate. And I say, fortunately, it's going to sound funny that you hear me say fortunately, but fortunately for me, a lot of things really just kind of clashed. At one point it was the perfect storm. Um, number one, all the veins in my arms were shot. I you know couldn't, couldn't shoot up in my arms anymore. And I started using my legs and there just wasn't too many more options left after that. That's number one. Number two, um, the pharmacist told me, listen, dude, uh, I can't fill your prescriptions anymore. And I said, okay, I'll just go to another pharmacy. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. You've been flagged by the DEA. He's like, I don't know how, what the number is. He said, but everybody has, uh, a certain number that they're allowed to fill. He goes, you've filled that times a thousand. 
nobody is going to fill your medication anymore. Nobody. That's number two. Um, and then number three, this chief that I'm talking about uh, rewrote, rewrote some policies. And if you're on any type of mind-altering drug after these policy changes, you're not going to be allowed to ratify a drug. So all that came together all at once. So, and to his credit, he tailored after this six month period of time that I was suffer that I you know was embarrassed and suffering, he tailored uh, some reintegration to me. He knew what would make me tick, and he sent me again to uh, an outpatient rehab center where I could go home at night. Um, and then every two weeks, if I was clean and got a good good report from the counselor that I was seeing, he would give me something back. And that went on for about 40 days. And then at the end of the 40 days, I had proven that I was ready to go back to the fire station. And I did. But within that third rehab center that I went to, I finally met somebody and talked with somebody that I could dump everything on. And he knew the answers. And part of it was because he was a recovered 25-year addict. So I could not pull the wool over this guy's eyes, man. You know, there was nothing I was going to say, nothing I was going to say or do that he hadn't done already uh-huh. <laughs> or that he wouldn't go. A lie that That's he had bullshit, bro. Yeah. That is bullshit. And he told me that more than once in there. You know, when you're an addict, uh, you become very good at convincing people uh, of certain things. And I wasn't able to convince that guy of anything. I had to show him everything. And, uh, that's the type of person I am, and I did well with that. And uh, coming up on July, I'll, yeah, in July I'll have uh, you know three three years clean. Um, and but I you know there's days I still struggle with the PTSD portion of it. You were alluding to it er- earlier. Um, I don't look victims in the face anymore. I can't. I, I can't do it um, because when I do it, it, it brings everything home to me. You know your triggers in a way. You start learning them, and then now you know. There's certain things you don't want to, I mean, uh, there, this gentleman I know, Jimmy Hatch, and I spoke about him in a couple of episodes already. He wrote a book called Touching the Dragon. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but I think you should read it. Um, and he, once you touch that dragon, everyone, that's it. You already know you don't want to touch it anymore. Right. So, um, I mean, that's the best way I could say it, um, at least for me. I've already touched it. I, mean, I did more than touch it. I played with this fucking thing. It bit me. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. then now I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'll see this creature from afar. It's because it's a creature that I'm constantly going to see. It's it's I, like the sun. It's, it's that far away, but I know it exists. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, do you do you now um, speak to other firefighters? Do you? I do. Now I don't. Within my department or within other departments, I, I won't hold anything back now. There is nothing really that... And it feels good, too. It does. Um, there, I'm not going to lie to you, Oz. I'm not by any means. I don't want this to come across as I'm, uh, man, I'm, I'm healed and I'm good and I want to tell my story. <laughs> Neither am I. No, brother. I mean, there are, day, there are days where I, I can barely look in the mirror. You know? I've, I've said um, it. I told you. I mean, I came home from dropping my kid off and I cried. I cried. I cried. I remember I didn't even go to school that day. I was supposed to go to school and I didn't go to school that day. I, I just... And then I posted something. I um, What was my post? So, I mean, some people are going to know. I mean, now from the, obviously what I'm saying, that they're going to know what day I'm talking about. I posted, it says, sometimes I feel like giving up. 
And I remember I have a lot of motherfuckers to prove wrong. Um, you know, it, it's the truth. There's so many. And, and, and the motherfuckers aren't even my friends. They're not even my family. The motherfuckers are people I don't even know. Mm -hmm. They're the people that say it's, uh, PTSD makes you crazy and it makes you want to kill yourself. Those are the ones I want to prove wrong. All the people that believe the stigma, you know? So, Absolutely. um, I try that. I, I use that method myself. Uh, I am a, since the time I was a little boy, uh, I'm a terrible, terrible sore loser, you know? Um, so I use that, you know, I want, there's people I want to look them in the face and, and tell them I, I fucking told, I proved you wrong motherfucker, you know? Um, and I use my crew at the firehouse and my close group of friends that they may not be at my firehouse, but I still think very highly of them. Um, there's a couple my crew and a couple of those other firefighters and officers that I've made a promise to, you know, and, uh, I told them I, I won't go back to doing that. I went and I promise you I'll never, never nullify my life, you know. Um, so I use that every day. And when I want to start feeling the itch, um, you know, for me, uh, when I get triggered, uh, whether it's PTSD, it usually will start as something PTSD related, a smell. Smells for me are huge. Oh, smell, scent. Um, I mean, the, the, the smell is a huge, huge, huge trigger for everybody. Yeah. Um and for me, uh, I, I don't know if uh, you had heard it. No, I don't think it was mentioned in, I don't know if it was a recording I made already, an interview like this, if I've posted it or not. But for me, it's when I cut uh, meat. But like it, when it's in the smell bag, of blood. the iron that you yeah. smell, but like when it's very thick, the thick oily blood mm -hmm. like that, that, that to me has done it for me as well too, the triggers. So for me, smell, some it'll take me right back to Haiti, you know. And for me, I, then I want to use you know, and then when I get that, my arms start to itch really bad. Uh, and uh, so I, I know that it's coming and, you know, I do some coping, some coping skills. Uh, you know, for a long time, what I was doing was I was doing push-ups. When I would get that, I would go somewhere and knock out 15 or 20 push-ups until it went away. Um, or listen to music or something like that. But I... I so I, I don't want you to think I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm healed. I'm good. I'm great. No, man, I struggle. I struggle sometimes daily. And sometimes within that day, I struggle by the minute, you know. I'll tell myself, just get through five minutes without using and you'll be okay. And then the next five minutes, get through 15 minutes, you know. And unless somebody's been in that mindset, they don't understand what that's like. You know, for me to, for me to tell my mom, Hey, uh, I'm having a oh, I really, I really ones. just want to use. She that's doesn't. One of the worst individuals to talk to. She uh, doesn't understand it. No. You know? Um. So yeah, I talk to. Uh, I, nothing is taboo with me anymore. I talk to. I talk to firefighters. Um. I get approached. You know. Um. Usually it's on the on the side. You know. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? You know. Um. That's happened more than once. It's happened very recently, actually, with with a close friend of mine that I didn't know who who was he was struggling, and he came and he said, "Listen, I know what's going on with you. Can you help me?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And I talked him through a bunch of stuff, and it happens a lot. Um, to be honest with Yaz, I wish it happened more. I wish I had the opportunity more. Um, I wish. I think we're still in a taboo spot. Um, I wish that I could openly speak during the guys that are on probation. I wish I could openly speak to them and tell them the dangers of 
PTSD and addiction. You know, I look at new guys coming on the job and I immediately want to tell them, dude, maybe you should have done something else because this career is going to be brutal. But then I look at him and go, man, how did I feel in that? When I was that guy, I, this job is everything, you know? So I try a delicate balance. I try to kind of warn them, hey, be careful. But at the same time, I don't want to diminish their happiness of getting on the job, you know? So it's, you got to be careful. Um, I wish I could do it more. I've kicked around the idea of going, and going back to school and becoming a, a counselor, PTSD counselor and addiction counselor. Um, sometimes life gets in the way, you know? Um, but yeah, man, I have, I have my days, um, you know? And uh, I have anxiety still. And the big thing when you're, as you know, when you're suffering from all this stuff, man, you get low self-esteem. It seems like self-esteem is the first thing, to, at least with me, is it was one of the first things well, to go out the door. Because you had already had uh -huh. hold yourself to a high standard. You already know everything you had done, the position you've been in before. And you look literally at the mirror and you're like, wow, I'm not that guy anymore. So I, I don't want to say low self-esteem, but yeah, you, you, you're just unhappy with where you're at right now because of yeah. who you were. I mean, things are getting better. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Um, this year, 2020 has started great so far. It's been a great year, you know. Um, and I, and what, I, what I do try to remember is that what's happened to me can happen to anybody, especially on the addiction side. We're all one mistake away from complete catastrophe in our lives, you know. And uh, it's important for anybody listening that may be struggling, you know, I would really love for them to just understand that taking that first step and asking for help is huge, man. You know, um, there's a lady that I would love for you to talk to. Um, her name is Joe Terry. Okay. She is a, I'm going to say survivor. She survived. She's a survivor of her husband was a 30 year fire chief, uh, in, in Kentucky and he retired and ended his life. She speaks now. And and she talks about the pain that they go through and the yeah, pain that she, she talks witnessed. about. Yeah, I just it. interviewed the, the episode we released this morning that I released this morning was Andy, a buddy of mine. And his brother did four tours, a highly decorated Marine, and then he committed suicide. Well, he, I mean, Andy will say he took his own life because he overdosed right. on a bunch of stuff he was taking. So um, he took his own life in a way. So, um, you know, so yeah, it's it's a huge problem when that whole thing is taken away from you, or where you either you quit your retire, or you get benched or whatever. When that gets taken away, it's that Brother, it's, the integration part, whether it's integrating back to civilian life or integrating back to to uh, to work because uh, you've been benched. But I wanna wanna ask you one last thing here. Um, I mean, you kind of did it right before we spoke about this, but if you were to give advice to yourself you know um or to somebody like you said that maybe doesn't want to come talk to you mm -hmm. um what 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 that advice would you be i know you said already go ask for help but well, literally what if you if let's say i was talking to somebody that was not ever going to ask for help they were going to white knuckle it and try and i'm and i why i literally want i'm asking you to tell me like you're speaking to that person because you're not going to, and, and, and the reason why I'm saying this is because I want people like you that are like you and me that are already past that zone where they want to help people. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't know how to. Right. And here's the thing. I've tried it and I've tried talking to you for 30 minutes. I lose you. Yeah. So I've learned that you got to do this within like a 30 seconds to a minute. 
and say something. So what if I if you had me right now, what would you be telling me? I would tell you, Ozzy, if you're not going to ask for help, the first thing I want to tell you is if you think you're in a bad spot now, trust me when I tell you that there's another bottom below this one and it's deeper, farther down the rabbit hole. And when you hit that one, there's going to be another one. Um, I will tell you, take deep breaths and allow yourself to fuck up, but have something in place, whatever it is that hits you, have something in place to start you back on that road to trying to get better because it's going to be a vicious cycle. You're going to do well, then stumble and fall. Do well, then stumble and fall farther than you were before. I promise you it's not going to get better unless you come up with some type of fail-safe way of doing things. And on your own, you probably don't have the tools for that. So it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse exponentially. It gets worse faster, you know. Um, But there is a delicate balance where you have to allow yourself that fuck up. You can't, oh, my God, I did it again, and then go on a three-week depression, you know, situation because that breeds it even more. Yeah, that's called sitting on the X. Uh, Yeah, man. Yes. Jason Redman talks about that, sitting on the X. You just put yourself on it, and now you're sitting on it. So, yeah. You know, you get rationalization, justification, and masturbation. What a way to fuck yourself, you know, because you really just, and I say the masturbation part is a joke, but you really just you find yourself rationalizing why it's okay and justifying why it's okay. And you will come up with more and more reasons as to why. Um, I found myself doing things that I never would have thought I would do. And you know what, while I was doing them, I was scratching my head going, God damn it, dude, I would go even deeper if I had to, to get this stuff. It doesn't get easier, Oz. It doesn't. And if you're doing it by yourself and you're hiding it in the dark, brother, you're not going to last. You're not going to last. So, it doesn't necessarily have to be professional help, man. Um, reach out to somebody that either can guide you in a direction, somebody much like me or you that's been there, done that, um, and trust in them. You know, Don't go putting your shit all over yeah. Broadway. Don't post everything. Don't, don't but... go putting your shit all over Broadway, but reach out to somebody that you know that can, that's been in your shoes. Um, they will do a lot better for you than you by yourself. So definitely don't do this by yourself. No, do so. not do it by yourself, man. Do not give yourself the, the fuck up periods. But if you're fucking up, getting better, fucking up, getting, and this is going on for a prolonged period of time, you're getting worse. Um, and you have to do something. I understand. I didn't ask for help for a long time and I, I wouldn't have, you know, um, I, it, had they not come to my house, I was gone. I was, I was checked out, man, you know, so it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse if you don't, if you don't take some steps. So thank you so much, Tim. Um, dude, I am so, like I said, blown away and honored to have you on my show. Um, I knew that we were going to talk about this personal stuff. Um, that, 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 that moment where I tell people it's almost, uh, it's we're living a life that it's that scene in Forrest Gump where she stands on the balcony (laughs) just to feel that moment of almost dying um, that you're constantly living like that, but you're not alone. And, and that's why I wanted to bring you on because you show that you're not alone. And I, I would have never thought I'd see myself in somebody that's been, you know, a firefighter for 28 years, but look how identical our, 
after maths were dealing with our situation. So thank you so much for coming to my house and recording and opening up. Thank you, bro. Um, I know it wasn't easy. Um, no, but I actually now I'm wishing <laughs> it could go longer. I had more time. Yeah. You see, that's what, that's what I was told by somebody else too. They were yeah. like, man, this thing was so awesome. I want to do this again. So, um, and it's I funny mean, you keep saying you're never alone because there isn't an, an organization within my fire department. Yes. Um, that you know of. Yes. Never walk alone. Yeah. Is that what it is? Right. Never walk alone. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have, uh, the, I believe an individual that, uh, I don't, I don't know if I can mention their name yet. Uh, but um, I'm going to have hopefully that individual on here because um, I know this isn't even a legit organization. This is just something that she's put together. Um, they've put together and um, they're doing it and they're trying to bring light towards it uh, to the firefighters. So I um, that's definitely the one thing I, I, I would say to people. And I'm glad that that's what your your final, you know, your answer was, is that you're not alone. And it's the you're truth. Not. You're not alone. Um, we just have to change the culture. Well, that's why I'm hoping that, you know, that's what this podcast does. I mean, because I think figuring yeah. figuring out you're not alone is also just hearing somebody's fucked up stories. Yeah, so. Absolutely. And you're, you're on it, man. You're, you're on to something here. You know, in the fire department, you get in trouble. You know, in a fire scene, we call what they call a mayday. Mayday, mayday, mayday. I'm, I'm in trouble. Come get me. All this is, man, when you're fucked up and you're, you're having a hard time, it's just a mental mayday. Call that fucking mayday. Call, get, get help coming to you, you know, um, and things will work out, you know. But, yeah. uh, I, man, I thank you so much for, for No, we're definitely going to do this again. I'm going to bring you on, man, because I got a lot of questions for you. I still, I got a lot of questions that we weren't able to answer. I, I, I believe that we do with our PTSD in certain ways as well. Um, I noticed you have a lot of tats. I wanted to talk a lot about your artwork. Sure. Um, I know that also also goes towards a dark path as well. Because um, I know, you know, I, I uh, the investigator in me just could see somebody's social media and I could put mm-hmm. their life together. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about because I know that you've gone through a lot of loss as well that has nothing to do with the service that you're in. And unfortunately, because of the service, these losses are 45 times harder or something like that so 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 yeah man um definitely i think we're we're gonna take a break for for this episode and i'm gonna definitely bring you back on because there's a lot that i want to talk to you about and i'm noticing how comfortable you've gotten and i definitely want to talk more about it because uh uh I know how I know what talking does. That's why I started this podcast. It feels great for me. I was really I've already met I've already made the decision. I was telling myself I was calculating how much it cost me to keep this on air. And I told myself that it's totally doable. Um I could I could it's it's less than a couple hundred dollars a month where it would keep me to cop to keep this on air. But I feel so great coming home. The other day I came home from uh from the road and the the traffic, all these people, the assholes in Miami. And I came home and I just recorded for five minutes. I think I said what I said. I deleted it afterwards or whatever, but it feels great to just talk it and, and shoot it out. So please don't um, stop this. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop this because I'm, I, I've already told myself I could afford it to keep it on the air, even without sponsors. And uh, I'll go ahead and keep it on air and release it once a week. Even if it's me talking shit, um, uh, eventually we're going to do, uh, I want to do a Facebook live and I want to do stuff like that. So, um, you're definitely going to be on here more, more, more often. Now you know where I live, and uh, yeah, brother, I'm here for you if you ever need anything. And um, if if you know who this individual is, and maybe you've wanted to talk to him or something, go up to him, walk up to him, and talk to him because you've already heard it. The door is open with him, and trust me that there is no better person to talk to than somebody that has been through the path that you're going through 
and the path that you're thinking of going through. So, and, uh, I'm, a, and I'm a grave. You come to me and tell me, and it, it lives and dies with me. I, I don't. So, I don't if talk. you've heard it here, ladies and gentlemen, um, I want to thank once again Timmy for joining us and sharing his story. And uh, look out for another episode because he's definitely going to be back on. So, thank you, thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Post Traumatic Survival Podcast. We sure do appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll receive notifications from us as new episodes become available. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. We certainly appreciate it. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show. We appreciate you and them. Until next time, survivors.